0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Why are bodies so horrifying? I'm Constance Grady and I write about culture for Vox and this week I'm your host for Vox Conversations. and Other Parties is a collection of short stories, and these stories don't have a clear genre. Authored by Carmen Maria Machado, the collection came out in 2017, was a finalist for the National Book Award, and the stories live in this fuzzy space between literary fiction and fairy tales and queer fantasy and the gothic. But I think of them as horror stories. Some of them are the kind of horror stories you tell around the fire at sleepaway camp, shivering deliciously over your s'mores. Some are horrifying the way fairy tales are horrifying, all grievance and rose thorns and broken glass. One of them is just a long list of Law & Order SVU episodes, and it's maybe the most horrifying of all. What brings together the stories of Her Body and Other Parties is the way they talk about bodies. These stories are fleshy, visceral, muscular. They are fully embodied. In one story, a woman can't get her otherwise devoted husband to stop fixating on the ribbon around her neck and what lies underneath it. In another, a woman goes through bariatric surgery only to be haunted by her lost fat. In a third, a woman living through the apocalypse goes through a mental list of her sexual encounters. This is a book of horror stories about bodies and specifically about women's bodies. If her body and other parties has a thesis statement, that thesis statement is living in the world in a woman's body is a horrifying experience. I wanted to ask author Carmen Maria Machado more about that idea. And also, when it comes to telling stories about bodies, is horror the best genre? Today's episode of Vox Conversations is the taping of a Vox Book Club live event before a virtual audience. Carmen, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So I want to start in with the title. There are a lot of layers in the phrase her body and other parties. So walk me through Mm -hmm. some of them.
0: Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, when I was beginning the process of writing this book a very long time ago, I remember having this whole thing about like, well, you know, what do I call it? And a friend of mine was telling me, oh, you know, with collections, usually you just pick like the story title that kind of like fits sort of the whole vibe of the book. And no sort of single title from the collection seemed to fit the bill. And so I began this thing, which now to me is second nature, but this was like me learning how to do it, which is like mixing and matching words <laughs> like from from various titles to like see how they fit together. And I at some point put together Real Women Have Bodies and Difficult at Parties, which is obviously two titles of the stories. And then at some point I was like, oh, her body and other parties be better than like... Uh, some other variation of that and I also was thinking a lot about I really love Ted Chang's story of your life and others which is a book that's really special to me and that has this like fun thing at the end where it it's like story of your life which is the title of a story in the book and then and others and the and others is like and other stories but also and other lives and so there's like a weird kind of game being played there and mm-hmm. I sort of liked that game and so that was also part of the process of doing that so I don't know and then once I had it it felt right then it never changed, even though I like added other stuff and like the other stuff with the book, like that title just sort of stuck.
2: And I think one of the things that makes it work so well is there are a lot of different emotional tones going on in this book. There's a lot of horror and comedy and sex and beautiful moments and and really upsetting moments too. So I'm wondering with all of these different emotional resonances whether you think of the stories in this book as belonging to any particular genre specifically.
0: I mean, I feel like they belong to a bunch of different genres. I mean, I think the book uh, maybe as a whole, I would say, the literary fiction, which is vague sort of on purpose, right? Because, I mean, the book as a whole is sort of concerned with sort of psychology and sort of very like sentence level, like truth down to a sort of sentence, like a granular sort of language level and sort of the music of language. And so I guess I would say the book itself is literary fiction. The individual stories occupy all kinds of different genres, right? There's a science fiction story, which is inventory. There's sort of liminal fantasy stories of various kinds and I'd say more explicit kind of horror. So I think it sort of just depends on, like, where you sort of zoom in and out of the project. My favorite writer is, like, a writer I really love is Kelly Link, who, like, similarly, if you were like, what genre does she write? And it's like, well... Lots of them, right? <laughs> kind of like all at once and is sort of borrowing freely from various ones. And to me, that sort of process is the most interesting part. So yeah, yeah it's sort of hard to say. And I've had people, like I had someone come to, up to me at an event once and be like two people and they were like, we both work at a bookstore together and we like keep arguing about like where we put your book, like in the store. And I was like, I can't help you. <laughs> like I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you have to figure that out for yourself. But yeah, I mean, I think... And I've seen it in like a million different places in bookstores as well. So it's interesting, that process. Oh, really? Where does it end up? I've seen it in like horror, science fiction, fantasy, sort of like a more like explicitly sort of genre section. I've seen it in general fiction. Mm -hmm. So it just sort of really depends on who's stocking it and what what they end up doing with it.
2: Now I want to go to like Barnes & Noble and see what they're doing.
0: I'm pretty sure Barnes & Noble is just in like the general, because I've definitely looked for it at Barnes & Noble. I think it's like in just like the general fiction section, but like with indies, especially, where you have these like small staff who are like, have a lot of control over the way the store looks and everything like it is really interesting to see like where they decide to place it
2: do you do the thing when you go to a bookstore of checking to see if they have your books oh always <laughs>
0: any writer who doesn't do that, actually. like, I mean, I'm not like weird about it, but I'm always just like, I'm just going to casually mosey over here to the M's yeah. and like, see <laughs> it's over here. I mean, whatever. I'm a human being. What, what else can you ask for for me?
2: Honestly, even critics do that. If I see a book I reviewed, I'm like flipping it open and being like, where's my blurb?
0: Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, I feel like anyone who says they don't do that is lying. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's true. So because this collection is moving through so many different tones and genres, it's interesting to me that it does still feel really cohesive. So I'm wondering what you think of as being the connective tissue for these stories.
0: When I was working on this book, I mean, a thing that's really important to me about a collection is that it does have a kind of organizing intelligence. And Mm -hmm. I think there are people who have different philosophies about how to put together a short story collection. And sometimes it'll just be like, it's the most recent X number of stories one has written. But for me, while I was putting this book together, I wrote many other stories that are not in this collection Mm -hmm. because they didn't quite fit tonally or thematically. And I remember like when I sold the book to Grey Wolf, my editor saying, I love like a really like slender, muscular collection. And I was like, yes, because it's only eight stories. I mean, two of them are fairly long, but still, right? It's like, I liked the idea of the stories having this conversation with each other about bodies and embodiment and gender and sexuality and illness and Sex and like I wanted those to be the themes that we kind of kicked around. And so, yeah, I would sort of like write a new story for something or for myself. And then I'd look at it and be like, does it belong in the collection? Eh, Yes or no? I wanted to make sure the stories were like in conversation with each other. The book had this sense of, even though they were short stories and they weren't in the same like universe or anything, they had sort of a central, almost like a thesis or advancing a kind of argument or conversation.
2: And I want to zoom in a little bit now on that conversation and where it applies to the body and specifically the bodies of women and queer people, which are so much at the center of this collection. So what draws you to writing about bodies in this kind of liminal space?
0: I mean, it feels so weird to say this because I would say I wrote this book pre-COVID and now like, you know. I almost said post-COVID, we're not post-COVID, but like in the years after COVID began existing, thinking so much about bodies and their fragility, you know, thinking about pleasure and also like human touch and like what it means when you're alone and what it means to be apart from other people, what it means to be ill, what it means to be scared for your life. I mean, these are all sort of modes of embodiment. And so in a lot of ways, I think these stories we're sort of meant to think about what it means to be on the edge of that, whether it's on the edge in terms of one's gender, like being a woman, or in terms of sex, or like other ways in that which people are liminal and ways in which people sort of exist on the periphery or exist on the margins or exist on the threshold and the ways in which like genre can kind of enhance or underline the effect of of writing about that so that was kind of early on i think a way that i like when i first began writing i think of it as like the me because like i wrote b- long before i ever wrote a story that like i would ever have published in a book but like there was a time at which there was a switch where suddenly i i began to like figure out what i wanted to write about and how and a lot of that had to do with like i want to write about These things that are really important to me and interesting to me, these questions about embodiment, gender, et cetera, sex, and how do I want to do it? I want to use sort of genre as like a tool to like think about this liminality and horror as well. And so I feel like in the way those genres are perfectly sort of situated to like begin to ask these questions when it's a horror story to like be in a woman's body in the US in 2022 or whatever. It's a horror story to be a person who is queer, who like practices sort of non-normative sexual practices or like gender practices, right? Or gender identities or it needs to be like a chronically ill person. So like those identities are perfectly situated to access horror or liminal fantasy or whatever.
2: And it's also so moving in a lot of ways that in this book, a lot of it is organized around the violence and the horror that can be inflicted on bodies. And then there's all of these really joyful embodiments of sex and food and pleasure. So how did you think about moving back and forth between those two emotional spaces?
0: I wish I had a super good answer for that. And the answer wasn't simply that I am interested in both of those things. And so like there's just two things that appeared in my book. It's so funny because I think I have a very serious perspective on the world. And I think this book has a lot of really dark things to say about all these subjects that I keep repeating in a list, which I will not repeat again. But I also think that for all the darkness and grimness of the world, and I consider myself a pretty much a pessimist about the world in general, but also there is so much joy in it. I wanted some of the sex to be like joyful and pleasurable and hot. And I wanted food to be like a sort of vividly described source of pleasure. That is actually a thing that I think a lot about. And that's like very important to me. I want to move a little bit away now from the abstract themes and more
2: into the details of the stories. So in The Husband Stitch, that's the story that retells the spooky story of the girl with the green ribbon around her neck. But your version takes its title from this practice of doctors adding an extra stitch when repairing vaginal tearing after childbirth in order to supposedly increase the pleasure of the husband during sex. So that is an idea that appears in the story, but just as a paragraph or two, kind of as an aside. So why did you want to make that the title of the story?
0: Yeah, so as sort of a practice a thing that is very important to me, which I did not originate, this actually came from an essay that I read also by Kelly, and now mentioned Kelly Link twice. If you haven't read Kelly Link, you must. She is truly one of my favorite authors in the world. She wrote a really great essay a million years ago that was on, I want to say io9, that I've read so many times. And she talks about... Curating a relationship with your SP, your silent partner, which basically she means your subconscious, like the sort of creative Mm -hmm. part of you that like you access to make art. And one of the ideas that she puts forth in this essay is sort of creating almost like a reward system for your subconscious. So like when you get an idea, you like write it down immediately, like you sort of honor the idea that you've been given by this creative part of your brain. And also like doing things like cultivating and creating lists where you like keep track of like your ideas and keep track of your obsessions and keep track of like the things that you're really focused on as a way of almost focusing your creative energy and like getting ideas. I have sort of like built on this over the years, but it has actually been like one of the most helpful things I've read in my entire life about creative practice. And as a result, I have more story ideas than I could write in my entire lifetime. Like, I will be long dead before I would ever get even through a tenth of the list that I only have now. And I'm like 35 years old, right? I've been writing professionally for like uh, 10 years at this point. So there's something about creating these lists that's very, very helpful. And so a thing that happened to me was that when I was in grad school reading this essay and I was beginning sort of the work that I am doing now... I visited an aunt who I don't particularly care for but a a relative of mine at the time was an OBGYN nurse Mm. and she just sort of in passing mentioned to me this detail which is that husbands sort of make this joke and they have different names for it they call it a husband stitch or a daddy stitch which is even grosser oh no (laughs) yeah daddy stitch is like way worse but like it's like interesting because it wasn't even clear at the time to me if it was a thing that actually happened or if it was like a joke that men made in the delivery room but either way it was horrifying and i like I do whenever I experience a horrifying thing, I'm like, whoa, and I like write it down. And not only was the idea horrifying, but the phrase, the husband stitch, was so provocative and specific. And so I was like, that would make a great title for something. And so years later when I was writing the story or I began to write the story, I actually had like the ideas that ended up becoming the story kind of written out in various ways in these lists. I was like, oh, I really want to write a story about sort of a mid-century housewife who really likes sex. I really want to write a story thinking about urban legends. I really want to think about this story with the girl with the ribbon around her neck, which is like an urban legend that I read as a kid in one of the Alvin Schwartz books and really stuck with me. And then I had this phrase, the husband stitch, just like written on like a list of like potential titles of which I have a, a very long list. And so I began to kind of pull it together and it occurred to me that this title... Was sort of the only title that felt cracked because it's like kind of an urban legend. It is real. It's not real. People ask for it. It's not clear if it's a thing or it's not a thing. And so it just felt like a perfect kind of title to go with this story, which is similarly about these like ambiguous modes of storytelling and of reality and of gendered expectations and male entitlement and things like that. And so usually once I've alighted upon the correct title, I just stick with it. And I, it's actually unusual for me to struggle with a title. Some people find titling horribly difficult. I am the opposite. Very annoyingly, I find titling delightful and quite easy. <laughs> so once I like get the right title, I'm done. That makes
2: sense to me because your writing is so tonally specific and titles are so much about creating that tone in a very compact sense and inviting the reader in. Like, this is how you're going to feel reading this.
0: I think so. I guess i never even thought about why I'm good at it. I also think there's a sort of sensibility. I also, like, read things out loud to myself. Like, so much of my process is, like, reading out loud what I've written and adjusting it accordingly and Mm. hearing it. And, like, a lot of that process is me hearing a thing and it, like, hits my ear right or wrong. And I, like, adjust accordingly. So I feel like titling is kind of similar. Where like, I hear a title and I'm like, that's good. I was reading something of a friend's recently, like an upcoming book. And I was like, I really don't care for this title. And I could not tell you why. I can, like, grasp at some ideas, but I'm just telling you the title is, like, hitting my ear wrong. It feels incorrect to me. Just a weird gift or curse. <laughs> Hearing
2: the thing that's wrong with it is very important, even if you don't know what the thing is.
0: Totally, Yeah.
2: gotta take a short break but when we come back how coming down with swine flu and netflix's autoplay function inspired probably the most divisive story in carmen maria machado's recent collection
3: box.
2: So I want to talk a little about Especially Heinous, the Law & Order SVU novella in the middle there. I know that you said that you wrote that one after you binged the whole show while you were sick one time. Mm-hmm. So what do you think it is about... SVU that we as a culture seem to find so compelling that it's become such an institution.
0: That is such a good question because it is I guess I used to say it's the only ongoing law and order franchise was the rape one but that's no longer true because now there's organized crime which is fucking terrible. It's a terrible show but I will watch it because I really love it. Taylor, like so much, it's like weird. It's weird for a lot of reasons. Anyway, the fact that this show, the show, that SVU's been going on for so long and has generated such like an intense cultural following to the point where the show has become absolute garbage, but like people still watch it. I still watch it, even though I hate it. I rewatch the early seasons. Actually, still, it's sort of like a comfort show for me. And the early seasons of SVU are, like, real bangers. Like, I mean, they're problematic as hell, but there are some really fucking good episodes of, of early Law & Order SVU. In yeah. the same way, there are really good episodes of Law & Order. But anyway, I mean, I think there's a few reasons it has a hold on our cultural imagination. I think the one of it is when it was Olivia and Elliot, they just have, like, incredible... Which I, I wrote this whole piece for the LA Times about this because I was like, I have feelings about their chemistry, but, like, their chemistry is really powerful just as actors, which is, like... It has nothing to do with, like, even the writing of the show or whatever. It's like, they just have really good energy, and I think people really responded... To that energy. And now I think everyone's kind of like coasting on like the smoke and fumes of like that goodwill generated by that energy. This is my personal philosophy, whatever. I don't know anything about television. But I think that also like we have such weird conflicting ideas about sexual violence and like Mm -hmm. so many sort of things about sexual violence, I think sort of ebb and flow with time. And so like episodes of the show sort of age well or badly depending on how our ideas about. Like a certain subject, like campus rape, for example, have like changed or shifted. And so, what's interesting now is I feel like the show has become so focused on this timeliness and like I hate to say wokeness because I just, it sounds like I'm, it's like before it actually was a barometer of our feelings and thoughts about sexual violence. And now it's trying to be that barometer, mm. which is not the same thing. And I think they're fucking it up very badly and stupidly in stupid ways. But I think for a while it actually was this like really interesting, like finger on the pulse of like how we conceive of narratives about different kinds of sexual violence and domestic violence and things like that.
2: And what were the parts of that show that you really wanted to play with in this story? What were the ideas you wanted to kind of roll around in?
0: I mean, again, I wish I could give you like a super slick, (laughs) sophisticated answer. It's so hard to say because I didn't write the story right after I was sick. Mm -hmm. Like I was sick before I went to grad school, I got swine flu. So the last pandemic was like deeply, actually, way sicker than I was when I had COVID. Like, I had like a fever that I like lost time, like, and I was like living alone. And like Netflix had done that thing where shows would just keep playing. So I had like turned on SVU when I was still kind of conscious and then like just lost days. And then like it was still playing when I kind of came to alone in my apartment. <laughs> I should have been in the hospital, whatever. It was very scary. But, There was something about that sort of like Lynchian sort of fever dream of like experiencing that show, which is already like so intense, like through this veil of illness or whatever. But also once I began writing it and began to sort of think about what I was doing, I was thinking a lot about just the concept of binging a show, Mm -hmm. the concept of like taking in a lot of violence or like sexual violence, like kind of all at once and like what it meant that the show had such a hold on us and what it means to like participate in these sort of images and narratives of sexual violence by watching the show. So I don't know, it just became like, there's a part of the story where like one of the characters, I can't even remember who because I haven't read it in so long. I think it's Benson, like looks out at the reader and is just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, you know, I wanted there to be like moments of sort of self-referential details where like we sort of got the sense that the characters are like trying to resist Mm -hmm. this sort of endless cycle. And it's funny because I wrote it, It's only 12 seasons, and now the show's been on for, what, like, 24 or something? Like, double the length of the show it used to be. So, like, it's funny to me. But I do really love that story. I feel like it's an interesting barometer. I feel like people who love it or they hate it. It's, like, a very divisive story in that collection.
2: I can confirm. One of the reasons that I wanted to do the book this month was that I knew someone who did not like that story. And I was like, I'm going to do
0: this just to talk about how good it is. (laughs) I mean, I I will say that it is such a specific story, and I think it's my best. Like, I truly Mm. believe that, like, all the stories in that collection, and of all the stories I've ever written, I think it's, like, one of the top stories. But yeah, a lot of people really hate it or don't know how to read it or, like, find it very stressful or, like, confusing. And I always find that fascinating. Mm. Like, I actually got funding to finish that book from a fellowship, and every year I would apply for the fellowship with this book I would get feedback like anonymous feedback from the jurors and one juror would be like I hated that story I hated it so much so eventually I just took the novella out and then I applied for funding again and then I got the funding and then I stuck the story back in because I was like I love this story I don't care what anyone else says (laughs) like I think the story is great and I'm just gonna lean into it
2: I think there is a specific skill to reading that story and like being steeped in not just pop culture, but like the tropes of that particular genre that I think not everyone necessarily has. But if you're in it, it works. Yeah. So I want to talk also about how a lot of these stories are very preoccupied with the idea of women getting smaller. So there's Eight Bites, where the narrator gets bariatric surgery and is haunted by her lost fat And Real Women Have Bodies, where there's this epidemic that causes women's bodies to fade away. And so how do you think about laying bare the horror of this idea of shrinking yourself for the world?
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right that both those stories have that concern. I mean, Eight Bites is a story that I I sort of needed to write in order to write the essay. I have an essay that I wrote right after I finished Eight Bites called The Trash He spoken, which came out in Guernica. Mm. It was right after Trump was elected. So it was like 2017, I think. So it was a while ago at this point. And it was like an essay that I've been trying to write for years that I wanted to write an essay about fatness. And I was really struggling because I like couldn't quite figure out like, you know, nonfiction is so hard because you're really trying to figure out what you think, which is like really mm. hard. <laughs> It's, like, the biggest challenge I have with nonfiction. And fiction, you can kind of, like, throw a lot of stuff in there and, like, it kind of, like, all works itself out. But, like, with nonfiction, you've got to kind of know or at least have a sense. And so I wrote 8 Bites because I knew that, like, fiction would help me kind of get closer to some idea about what I thought about it. And in that story, the idea that we hate our bodies so much and we treat them so badly, even though the, all they do for us is, like, care for us and sort of ferry our ungrateful brains to this horrible world, right? And we just, like, punish them and punish them and punish them to death. And so that was the story that I wrote. And then eventually, when I wrote the essay, I sort of incorporated that idea and, like, kind of played on it. And then also was thinking very literally about the sense of, like, the fat mind or the fat body Mm -hmm. and, like, what it means to, like, displace more air and take up more space. That, like, we talk about taking up space in, like, a metaphorical sense, but, like, a fat person takes up literally more space than a thin person Mm -hmm. and, like, is an audacious being. That there's an audacious way of existing that for a fat person that, like, is different than a thin person, whatever their relative personalities are. And so that was, like, an idea that I've been sort of exploring for many years and, like, trying to sort of articulate my thoughts about this through fiction, through nonfiction, etc., Real Men Have Bodies is actually interesting because it's one of the older stories in that collection. In fact, it's the second to oldest story in the book. I feel like that story in some ways is like a story of a much younger writer. I mean, I wrote the stories in this book when I was 23, 24, 25. I now I'm almost 30. I'll be 36 this summer. Mm-hmm. And so like, it is the book of a different writer. And I think a younger writer, and I think a writer who was sort of beginning to have thoughts about invisibility and of the way that we are sort of societally being kind of pushed into these margins or edges. But I feel like it's almost like a little less sophisticated than I would like think about now, you know, in my much later years. Mm. Yeah, I feel like 8 Bites to me is the more, because like I feel like that idea and like thinking about fatness in that way is like a newer sort of way of thinking. And I keep thinking about like, I wish there was like more of a discipline of like fat literary criticism because I feel like it's actually like interesting sort of angle or way of thinking about writing and language and bodies. And I'm beginning sort of thinking about that a lot.
2: Oh, that's very interesting. I know disability criticism is like a
0: newish sub-genre. Totally. And I think that's like related, but not quite the same. Yeah, but I, yeah. I feel like, right, that would obviously be like a comparable sort of area of... Embodiment and... yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Precisely. We're going to take
2: one last quick break. When we come back, author Carmen Maria Machado on the uncanniness of womanhood and other intriguing questions from the audience of this Vox Book Club event.
1: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
2: turning it over to audience questions now, I want to start with this question from Michaela. She asks, how do you think Latinidad and its ideas of spirituality and reality, as well as beauty and femininity, influence the sort of liminal feelings around the uncanniness of womanhood?
0: Oh, God. Okay. I'm going to drive you on to that question, which I think is really amazing. And I also feel like I'm not qualified to answer it. I mean, I think that thinking about womanhood femininity like these ideas of like gender presentation in the context of latinidad which like it's itself like a thesis of like i am not even remotely prepared to sort of address or talk about but i understand what kind of the question is i mean i think that there is something really sort of specifically weird about the fact that we have like created these sort of narratives and structures around gender. And I think that there's actually a really interesting way to like lean into like, I guess you call it like the femme uncanny, which like I'm now just inventing and I'm like, ooh, thank God, I would read like a whole paper about that. Heck yes. But like the idea almost that like it's so strange how we've thought and conceived of gender in this way. And so there is almost like a weirdness to it that you could push and lean into. And now I'll be thinking about that literally all night. So So thank you, Michaela. That's a wonderful question. Femme
2: Uncanny. So good. Please (laughs) copyright that. So we have quite a few questions about the planned TV series adaptation. Do you have any news on where that is?
0: Well, I can tell you that the thing that I feel like people sort of know about, the anthology Mm. thing, is no longer a thing. You know, the world of Hollywood and TV is, like, very strange and sort of ever-moving and ever-changing. And Mm -hmm. I can't, like, give a lot of detail, but I can say that there's, like, new stuff happening with it. It's all very exciting. I don't think it's going to be an anthology structure the way that we had sort of initially conceived of it, just because that is a a structure that isn't really— I mean, I know they do still make them, kind of, but I just feel like it's a genre or a form that, like, isn't really taking off, I think, the way people want it to. And so Mm -hmm. it probably will not be in that structure but, I mean, it's all very exciting I and mean, I love the idea of my work being adapted and, like, I think adaptation in general is really interesting. And so I just, yeah, we'll see. Are you involved in the creative part of the adaptation at all? No, I'm working on my own projects, which I also can't quite talk about yet. But for, like, Body and other parties, like, I'm just sort of a consultant. At this point, I've done so many things that like, I can't be doing all my own projects because I just wouldn't have time. But I get to always serve as like a consultant and like a presence sort of reading what people are working on. And like, I know who's writing the adaptations of my work and I meet them and like interact with them and like read their scripts and like give feedback. And, but I also am like stepping back. I mean, it's also like, it's not my, it's like their thing, you know, and I am a big believer in like when someone's adapting your work, like you have to make sure that they're being faithful to like a certain Like, there are things that I'm worried about. Like, I want my characters to be Latina. If they're Latina, like, I want them to be fat. If they're fat, I want them to be queer. Like, I have, like, thoughts about that. But, like, I'm not precious about, like, other stuff in the book. Like, I'm like, yeah, if you want to, like, mix things together or, like, cut things or change things, like, whatever. It's, like, an adaptation. That's, like, what it's for. That's what makes it so interesting.
2: Very exciting. We've got a question from Anonymous. They say, hello from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. In your story, Mothers, you reference driving to Wisconsin to see the jelly man, as it turned out, he was dead. Sorry this question isn't deep. I'm just so curious.
0: Who is the jelly man? No one has ever asked me this. Well, actually, okay, so it's, it's not quite true. So here's what's so funny with this question is that my book has been adapted into, like, I want to say 23 languages, some like ridiculous number of languages. And every single time it's a new language, I get a confused email from some poor translator who's like, I have Googled this. What is the Jellyman? Like, they never know. They're like, how do I? And I have to just be like, I'm so sorry. Think of it as like a made up thing. It's like invented. And it, that is true. Like to say we went there to see the Jellyman is a more or less meant to be kind of whimsical and not like meant to signify anything. However... My mother grew up in Wisconsin and I spent many summers of my childhood in Wisconsin. My mother's from southern Wisconsin, like Mineral Point. Highland is like this very small town that she's from, like in. So I used to go to the House on the Rock all the time as a kid, if that means anything to you. Like I used to go there all the time. American Gods. Well, yeah. So American Gods like kind of made the House on the Rock very, very famous. But I spent I've been there dozens of times. Like I've been there so much. So Wisconsin is like a place that occupies a lot of like, place in my heart, and like a lot of place in my memory. And when I was a child, there was this man who used to own this place called the Summer Kitchen, which I don't know if it exists anymore because he died and passed it on to his sort of adopted son. And then his son died. And I actually don't know what's happened to it, but it was literally this like beautiful farm that was sort of like in the area. They were family friends of my mother's people. And so every summer we would go visit, and we would like get it's so weird but like just crates of like jams and jellies and the man who ran the farm who we really loved because he was like this very gruff man we like but he was like very soft and sweet but like kind of scary which is like my favorite type of person in the world so he would like take us around and show us like the animals he had like peacocks and he had all these like animals and we take us to various fruit trees he like grew all the fruit on his property and like i guess he was a big presence at like the madison farmer's market every week and like I feel like sold like jams to like, I want to say like Nancy Reagan or some, anyway, like he was just like a presence in that community and in that world. And like, we knew him just this way. And like, I saw him like basically every summer for the first like 20 years of my life. And so when I was writing that story, I thought about the, and I just said, call him the jelly man. That's not what we called him, but I you know, and I said the jelly man. And then I was like, but it turned out he was dead. Because that is actually what happened was at some point I went to go see him when I was in grad school and I called my mother to figure out where I was going and she was like, he passed. And I was like, really, really sad about it. Anyway, so it's a very complicated explanation for what is meant to be like a very throwaway line, but no one's ever asked me that before. No one's ever been like in a Q&A, but like, I'm from Wisconsin. Who the heck's the jelly man?
2: That is a wonderful story. Thank you for sharing it. That actually really adds to my understanding of that story. So I want to just close us up with just one final question sort of overarching the themes we've been talking about here, which is this book is so good at evoking the horror and the pleasure of just having a body. So I guess my big question is how do we use fiction and short stories to come to terms with the horrible and wonderful things about moving through the world in our horrible and wonderful bodies?
0: Uh Uh-huh, great question. I mean, I feel like if I knew the answer, I would, why would I be, I would just be out accepting my body for its complicated self. I mean, I, for me, fiction has been a way to sort of place my mind in my body. Mm. But it's happening in this very abstract way, obviously, because like the characters of the book, I mean, obviously there's like a lot of stuff from that book. That I've taken from my real life and other people's lives, like as all fiction writers do. But then characters, not the characters are like me explicitly, right? Like Mm. it's more complicated than that. It's like, you know, it's weird. But a lot of times, like for me, it's this moment of almost like externalizing that conversation and externalizing the, the relationship between like my brain and my body and like putting it somewhere else and being able to look at it as opposed to it happening in here, which is normally it's like the loop mm-hmm. is happening here and the story like adds this like third like data point or something. I mean, I feel like reading can be in that experience as well, where it's like suddenly there's this way of like looking at it. And I've actually had like multiple people say to me, 8 Bytes specifically, like kind of got them to rethink a lot of stuff about their body. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great story. But like really what I think is like happening is like, it is giving you this, thing that you can look at, because I feel like you can get so in your head about, I mean, I'm a hypochondriac, so, like, I'm literally in my head constantly about my body, like, about what I'm feeling, and, like, I'm hypersensitive to, like, every little experience and so every symptom, every non-symptom, every, like, breath. I'm just aware of it in this, like, very, very sort of heightened way And I feel like having a piece of writing, whether you're writing it or you're reading it or like something like externalizing it in the same way that like you can give really good advice to a friend, but you can't give that advice to yourself because it's like it's helpful to have like a thing that's like in front of you and like out there. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like, yeah, like I think there's something about that process that like creates distance and space and just allows the person to like externalize and like look at it. And have a clearer relationship with it. That's my guess. <laughs> I mean I, I hope that's correct. I don't I don't know.
2: <laughs> I think it's a very lovely place for us to end off. Carmen, thank you again. This is so lovely. Of course. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And if you did like the episode, share with your friends, and please rate and review. Join us next week for a brand new episode.